was Bond. James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bear tree. Just a slight stiffness coming on. Your cellos are studied various. I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. You know what I can do with my little finger. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, Series 3, Episode Number 6. Thank you very much for joining us this week. Do make yourself at home here inside the Cubbyhole, the podcast that explores every facet of everyone's favourite problem eliminator, licensed troubleshooter, gentleman agent, James Bond, 007. We are still waiting for that Spotify exclusive deal, so in the meantime, you can find us on all popular podcasting sites, and your support does mean a lot to us, so do consider leaving a review. And of course, after listening to this episode, if you haven't already, you can also explore our back catalogue. Series 1 was where we reviewed every single cinematic Bond adventure, and since Series 2, our main features have involved interviewing Bond alumni, both cast and crew members, as well as interesting characters in the wider Bond community. And talking of which, you, as our faithful listeners, are part of that community, so feel free to get in touch with the show if you've got any Bond questions, theories, suggestions, stories. Do send them through our social media pages or via email at rogermorescubbyhole at gmail.com, and Phil in QBranch will select the best ones to feature in a future episode. Now, in our previous episode, we spoke to wine expert and TV personality Ollie Smith about his love of all things Bond. We shared our favorite Bond dining scenes, and we also let our imaginations run slightly wild, picturing the poolside life of Cuban hitman Hector Gonzalez in For Your Eyes Only. But uh, what have we got to look forward to this week? Well, let's find out with the usual hosting team. Firstly, he's a man who, rumor has it, drinks Dom Perignon 53 above 38 degrees Fahrenheit and listens to the Beatles without earmuffs. It's Adam. How are you, Adam? I'm very good, thank you. I very proudly listen to the Beatles without earmuffs. Uh, some of their stuff is uh, is really good. I think they're going to catch on musically. Um, I just wanted to actually pick up on a couple of bits from last week. We omitted, actually, from our list of uh, top seven dinner scenes, one of the great unseen James Bond eating scenes, which is from Russia with Love, when he has that very strange breakfast order of green figs yoghurt and coffee very black. I mean, what does coffee very black mean? I mean, coffee is, is surely just black coffee. And also, we also talked about in uh, the James Bond Film Club, whether Escape to Athena being an on-screen meeting of Roger Moore and David Niven was the only film which has an on-screen meeting of the Bonds. And actually, it isn't. Because David Niven and Roger Moore made a second film together. It's called The Sea Wolves, also stars Gregory Peck, and we'll be checking that out in the future. We should watch that one whilst eating green figs and... Very black coffee, I think. Well, the weird thing about green figs and yogurt is, I think, I think green figs are sort of a laxative, and yogurt is kind of an anti-laxative. So they're sort of cancelling each other out in terms of if he was selecting either of them specifically to like aid his movements, then he's, he's thwarted himself. But maybe the coffee very black then adds another element. That's that's next week's list. 007 best toilet bond scenes. And secondly, he's a man who's as mad as a bag of bees, although only when you get him talking about cars. It's Phil. How's it going, Phil? Very well, thanks, Martin. Um, of course, looking forward to a uh, another episode of getting in some Bond action today. And of course, as Martin mentioned previously, you can always give us a like or um, a review on our social channels. So please do keep in touch. 
I believe on on the social channels, didn't we have a sort of rebuttal to um, the quiz last week? Didn't weren't we a little bit out on some of the uh, the actual amounts of alcohol that Bond consumes? I, mean, I haven't really looked into this, but would that have changed the result? We were. It was actually Don not got in touch with us on Facebook to mention that we were we actually underestimated how much Bond drinks, and I believe it was Diamonds Are Forever. And die another day. Yes, I'm not Martin. We'll probably have to consult with our statisticians to uh, to work out, you know, whether that would have changed the result. I'm I'm all for a recount, obviously, being as I I lost out there. But um, yeah, Martin, I think as you were the quiz master, we'll uh, we'll leave it up to you. Yeah, I think there's no VAR in terms of uh, analysing how much Bond has drunk. So uh, so no, I think the result stands. Uh, but I do stand corrected. Obviously, the, uh, we need to go back and, and analyse Bond's consumption of alcohol there uh, i think i was using actually i was just using a random infographic from reddit i believe so uh reddit not particularly known for its uh, accurate uh, descriptions of things but uh, <laughs> but there we are do you, do you as, a, as a sort of uh, lecturer and educator mind do you, do you encourage the use of reddit in uh, in your students research uh no <laughs> i mean i have to say no in case anyone any of them are listening but <laughs> Your quizzes, Martin, are more crooked than uh, Kamal Khan's backgammon games or a round of golf with Goldfinger. If that's his original ball, I'm Arnold Palmer. Okay, so we begin, as ever, with On the Scene, where we analyse some of our favourite scenes and moments from the Bond franchise. And this week, we're off to the Republic of Isthmus and Bond's high-stakes blackjack game, followed by his first encounter with drug baron French Sanchez. I mean, his first encounter, if you don't count the other hooker duck of the other plane at the beginning, it's an awkward, tense affair. So let's get a reminder of what happens with a man who is often awkward and tense himself. It's Mr. Alan Partridge. Iguana-toting nutter Franz Sanchez and whiny yuppie moron Truman Lodge are watching Vegas legend Wayne Newton wander around the set of The Spy Who Loved Me on an embarrassingly small TV set flogging smack at 22 Gs a kilo, while Lupe lies really badly to Sanchez about Bond crashing a boat cabin. Downstairs, angry Welsh Bond Timmy D and a glammed-up Pam Boovers are taking Sanchez to the cleaners at Blackjack. So he sends Lupe down to flirt him to distraction while Boovers gets gel and downs his vile martini. Timmy D forces Lupe to actually start acting and take him upstairs to see Sanchez. I help people with problems. Problem solver? More of a problem eliminator. Awkward laughter. Senor Bond, you got big cajones. You come here to my place with our references, carrying a piece, throwing around a lot of money. Nobody's seen you come in and nobody has to see you go out. Bond flatters Sanchez with his sexy brooding grey eyes, then shakes his hand and moans to Pam Boovers on the way out. He's sitting up there behind two inches of armoured glass. I need a cannon to get to him. Or Q, who's conveniently rocking up in the next scene. The end. Bless your heart, Alan. Thanks for your succinct summary of Licence to Kill, the, uh, one of the more exciting tense scenes in the film there. Of course, this one is the uh, the grittier Dalton entry. And uh, I think I, I quite like the uh, what we get to see from the villain here. We get to see friends Sanchez in his element, really. Uh, he's relaxed. He's, uh, you know, he's just promised Lupe a shopping trip. He's given a kiss to his little pet iguana, which 
clearly has gone on a shopping trip of its own with that ridiculous jewel encrusted collar. Uh, he seems to be the kind of the master of his universe at this point, uh, kind of what you'd expect from the, the head of the cartel. Uh, so he's kind of more intrigued by Bond, I guess, at this, st- uh, this stage rather than threatened by him. Uh, but it is it, it does show that uh, Bond does have those big cojones, doesn't he? He's going in there very confident. He knows that the only way he's going to infiltrate this gang is to uh, is to act in this way and uh, try and get respect from the uh, the big boss at the top. So it's it's quite a tense scene. Obviously, that awkward laughter that you get as well. Yeah, I agree with you, Martin. I think it's also interesting. There's not really a huge amount of music in this scene as well. It's it's very there's a lot of tension in the kind of the sense of you know because Sanchez and Bond are trying to work each other out. You know, so it's very clever interplay because again you've got this sense that you know Sanchez always wants to be in control and he always wants to have that power of people. You know, he has that power over um, Lupe and he has that power over Truman Lodge and Heller and all the people within his gang. And yet with Bond, he can't. Re- he, he almost perhaps sees Bond as an equal. He almost sees him as kind of someone in his own mold obviously Bond is trying to play up to him and trying to give him this impression that he's you know he could be his right hand man almost and obviously we get those kind of really tense moments where that sort of really awkward laughter is very much forced and it's kind of you know you don't really know where that's going it kind of feels like the scene in Goodfellas where they're kind of they're all around the table and all kind of laughing at each other and it's kind of very awkward and feels very sinister but it is an interesting conversation isn't it they're both very relaxed and they both think that they hold the power when they're talking in that office and they have this interesting thing where they're talking in code for a lot of it but they know what each other are saying when he says i'm a problem eliminator sanchez knows immediately that he's looking at an assassin um but i'm not sure they i'm not sure bond is trying to make sanchez see him as an equal i think he's flattering him a little bit and almost making sanchez see bond as a powerful beater almost he's kind of conceding to sanchez that he is the alpha male here the other interesting thing is he's kind of handed his passport over and it says bond on the passport you know he says senor bond you've got big cojones so it's that thing of he's not even trying Bond to hide his identity to Sanchez because he knows he's actually been given a very natural cover. He knows Sanchez is going to check him out and know that he was, at least at this point, formerly of MI6 or that he is gone rogue. Because, of course, Sanchez doesn't know about the lighter connection, so he doesn't know how dangerous this is. Yeah, I wonder if they've got Max Zorin's computer. Like, we'll quickly look him up. Truman Lodge, maybe he could have been doing that, couldn't he, in the background? Yeah, although at that point, he's still stinging from that lovely barb bond has when uh, Sanchez says him about to get a work permit here. You've got to have skills no one else in Isthmus possesses. And uh, Bond just goes, well, that shouldn't be too hard. And it just cuts away lovely editing throughout all of this to Heller and Truman Lodge just sort of looking down and around like sort of sheepish children who've been found out that they're useless. But it's just, it's quite a nice little insight into the kind of relationships that Heller and Truman have with each other and obviously that they have with Sanchez as well because of the fact that you know Truman Lodge is very much focused on this business deal he's not really interested in this British guy that's in the casino whereas for Heller and for Sanchez they're very much more interested in what's actually happening from that side of things so I think it's an interesting power play almost between those characters. Pam's really fascinating. She's got this weird Cinderella thing going on in the film, hasn't she? She's kind of played for laughs as a Dixie agent who doesn't know what she's doing, even though she's secretly running Heller as a a CIA mole. And yet here, you know, she's told to get the drink. She has that funny moment when she downs it and realises how horrible a shaken, not stirred vodka martini actually is. But there's that thing of she's had to go away and try to look the part and rise to the occasion. But Bond doesn't yet trust her to act to the part. She's sort of still the tomboy 
as opposed to the fully fledged Bond woman. And that's kind of interesting because Lupe is the fully fledged Bond woman. And so Pam gets very jealous of that. And it becomes, you know, an interesting catty dynamic that they have to play off. Yeah, I mean, I must admit, I do like Pam Bouvier's sort of hand gestures when she's ordering the, you know, the shaken, not stirred martini, where it's like the shaken, not stirred pretty much downs an entire martini, which I wouldn't recommend because having tried one, it's it's definitely one you have to take slowly. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the the miming of the shaken, not stirred there, Phil. I noticed that as well. Why is she, if you're miming something and the person doesn't speak English, you would do the shaken part, but why would you mime the stirred part? Uh, but anyway, I, I think I agree. I do agree with what you said about the uh, the main character of uh, Pambouvier there. It's, it seems a bit more realistic as well than other jealousy plot lines that we may have had in Bond. It, it seems a bit more real. I guess that's part of the direction as well. And uh, actually, in preparation for discussing this scene, I was going back to the, I don't know if you've seen the the inside documentaries, the ones narrated by Patrick McNee. And uh, I didn't know that uh, Carrie Lowell, as part of her screen test, uh, had to act the part of Stacey Sutton from A View to a Kill when she's talking about the boring geology of Silicon Valley. And her real, her father in real life is a geologist. So it's interesting that that <laughs> quirk of fate there may have helped Carrie Lowell get the uh, the part. Just going back to that point of control and the fact that Dalton sort of, Dalton's Bond doesn't trust her for some reason, even though she is clearly highly competent and, you know, and does that call into question just how in control Dalton's Bond is? And we see it as well in those scenes between Bond and Lupe um, after she's uh, she's kind of come down as the croupier and he's left the table. He's trying to play it cool, but he's incredibly volatile. Like, you know, in the middle of this public place, he's grabbing her arm, he's sort of yelling at her, spitting with rage almost so it just gives that little impression that Dalton's Bond is not as in control and as calm in this as he thinks he is yeah I do feel sorry for Lupi as a character in this scene because she's kind of being used and controlled isn't she by by both Bond and Sanchez in different ways but uh, but then my sympathy goes down a little when I see the acting yeah I suppose do we need to address the elephant in the room and, and come to, to Lisa Soto obviously uh, as Lupe it's not the worst acting in a Bond film I don't think but it, it is quite wooden for, for quite a lot of this scene I think it's you know particularly because of the the tension that is is being built up and, and Lupe you know is quite an integral character in this scene and it, it it's not delivered particularly well maybe that's being a bit unfair to, to Lisa Soto but you local that's crazy. To return very briefly to something you said at the start, Martin, I, I do love the sort of opulent gaudiness of, of Sanchez's office as well. You sort of really buy him as a guy who's kind of set himself up as the head of this um, banana republic. Um, you know, and, and it's kind of that thing that Stromberg and Drax had, isn't it? He's completely out in public. Uh, and it's also a little bit scarface as well, doesn't it? You know, that big old mansion Al Pacino has. And at the same time, a mirror image of M's office as well, do we think? It's, it's sort of got a very similar look, but with these really weird, tacky, golden pieces in it as well. I also think it's quite revealing of of perhaps Sanchez's paranoia, the fact that that Bond goes up to the window and he and he sees the armor light sticker at the bottom of the the glass to indicate that it's you know two inch thick bulletproof glass. So you know Sanchez knows he is a target. You know he's, he knows that he has to protect himself without really saying anything. That kind of gives a reveal into you know Sanchez as a as a person. You know he knows he's 
his empire is always going to be under threat, whether it's from the authorities, whether it's from rival gangs or... And we also see the two Hong Kong agents milling around behind. So you really do get that sense of this international conspiracy kind of slowly surrounding him. Yeah, it doesn't have a... A bulldog paperweight, doesn't he? Like, um, probably should have been a miniature version of the winking fish. Would have been better. But I think the, uh, yeah, I think you shouldn't trust anyone who who dresses pets in that kind of jewelry or, or wears a watch on their right hand. I'm always suspicious of those kind of people. In terms of his world as well, we have to talk very briefly about that surreal Joe Butcher telephone because it's wonderful, isn't it? It's so deliberately kitsch and shoddy just in order to be completely innocuous and hide the true purpose of what he's doing. Yeah, it does feel a bit weird when we get. Uh, it certainly doesn't feel like a Bond film, does it, when we cut when we cut to Joe Butcher? Uh, but it's not quite Wallace and Gromit that we get in, in No Time to Die. Well, I just, I just love the low budget of it as well. You'd expect kind of, you know, a, a drug dealer of Sanchez's standing to have, you know, quite a, possibly a glamorous broadcast. And yet it's just one film crew on what looks like public access television. It just seems to be like a really rubbish, low-budget broadcast for like a multi-million dollar drug deal. So it's it's quite a funny juxtaposition, really, if you like. Yeah, and deliberately so. And I, th- I think, you know, that's purposeful. And, and I love that it's on that tiny crack TV set as well. It's like you could definitely afford a bigger telly than that. Go to your phones. Please help us. Bless your heart. And now it's on to our main feature of the episode. It's for your ears only, the interview segment. And this week we had actually two very special guests, partners in crime, you might say. But who were they, Adam? Well, you know what? We've not talked Octopussy for quite a while on this podcast, but we're going to talk a lot of Octopussy now because we have David and Tony Meyer, uh, the two acting twins who played Mishka and Grishka, the knife-throwing twins in Octopussy. Uh, So let's cross over to them and hear their experiences of filming Octopussy. Uh, Well, uh, I think for both of us, their first contact with with, um, James Bond was in a a strip cartoon in the the Daily Express or the Sunday Express, perhaps both. And the first one was was Dr. No. Rather extraordinary, the man, you know, we saw him being massaged and crawling through tunnels and things like that. So it had a certain kind of um, strangeness about it. And then then we remember the, the film, when it was out, had a lot of big coverage. There was a shot of Sean Connery on on his knee knee in the open doorway, which is sort of in in all the papers. And from the go, it was was alive. You know, people were really interested in it. In between that, there's the pan paperbacks, which were the sexiest books it was able you could you could buy in those days. Uh, You know, the, the one chapter would always end as she gently sunk onto the bed. That was as sexy as you so they were so it was a sex for James Bond actually as a Jew remember <laughs> so tell us a little bit about where um, you were in your careers by I guess the time of 1982 just before you were casting Octopussy what, what were you sort of doing at the time? Bit of everything really bit of Shakespeare and we both performed with um, the Royal Shakespeare Company and Peter Brook in a production of Midsummer Night's Dream. So, yeah, so with a circus, uh, his famous trapezes and circuses uh, production on, on a white set. Yeah, and then we sort of worked through different things. We actually worked, played Rosencrantz and Gillenstern in a production of Hamlet by Stephen Burkhoff. I'd also done, uh, in 79, I did a film called the Tempest, by, directed by a guy called Derry Jarman. Uh, all acting comes and goes. There are lean times and good times. And uh, Octopus, he was definitely a good year. You could, 
hold your head up at Christmas on on that yet. <laughs> Fantastic. And and how did you come to be involved in Octopussy? And was it a long process? And and were you cast kind of together or, or separately? Yes, well, David had got nominated for his performance in the time the Tempest as a newcomer or or that year, and I was playing a Russian waiter in a in a fringe production at the Gate Theatre, Latchmere Gate. So it was kind of um, we were asked to come and maybe we saw Debbie, yes, Debbie Williams, I think. They they were kind of interested. Perhaps they were just relieved because they'd been seeing so many you know odd people. Um, sort of big heavies you know bouncers and so on from from the nightclubs and um we'd actually seen apparently got some had some film and acting experience and then we got um really only one other meeting with um broccoli um in a room where we were confronted by this uh... <laughs> you got we got out of this, this is huge sort of semicircle table a bit like the strange love uh war room you know um it was very quite intimidating with the, 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 the wardrobe lady designer the producer director blah, 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 blah. they were plonking these weird wigs on us too at that time to see the 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 eighties the, the, the years of big hair and uh, I remember plodding Duran, back. Duran, was it? And those days, I don't may, know. Maybe I remember plodding back into my dressing room and, and looking at myself in the mirror. And the only image I could see was, was uh, the memory of my mother. She'd just come back from the hairdressers. Uh, and I thought, great, I'm playing in a, a, a James Bond villain and I look like my mother. But they seemed to be quite happy as they had indeed, as Tony said, gone through every, all twins everywhere. There were these twins in the script, um, based on some French characters, I think. And uh, we had pursued different careers, but we found that um, being a twin was something you could play and uh, only had to cross your legs at the same time. And they go, oh, amazing. Uh, <laughs> it's strange because first how... of all, we weren't quite sure about it. Our first time we were working together wasn't very successful at all. <clears throat> and. Um, because um, I think we did have very separate kind of experiences as uh, going into Fringe. I went to the I went to the Citizen Theatre Glasgow, and um, and you wanted to be an actor because you there were all these other people you wanted to be. You didn't want to be the person that your parents thought you were, you know. And then suddenly, oh, we want you to be your brother. <laughs> you want to be brothers, you know. But we have worked through it, and of course. Um, you know, it's sort of paid off, really, hasn't it? It was a good year, as David said, and, and you had something to tell the taxi drivers when they said, oh, yeah, you're an actor, are you? Well, what have you been in? Well, at least, you know, uh, James Bond is, sounds okay. And your characters in the film, Mishka and Grishka, they were knife throwers in Octopussy's Circus. Was it uh, nerve-wracking on set or were the, were the big wigs the, the scary part? <laughs> We suddenly got the call, the circus, were you doing the circus scene tomorrow? We hadn't had the knife throwing lessons for quite a while. We were, there was a guy who was a knife thrower who had what you call an Apache scene with his girlfriend throwing knives at her on the stage. And he taught us how to throw these Bowie knives, which weren't actually knife throwing knives at all. But he did have, we had had practice against trees. And I, I do remember the, the, the circus was a proper circus. I mean, there was an audience and everything. 
and some little brat of a boy came out and said, but you can't really throw those knives. I wasn't actually throwing knives at Tony when he was on the wheel. When, when I'm throwing a knife, it's the, the wheel is blank, obviously. The guy who threw the knives, taught us about the knives, is taking care of the long shot when you see a knife going towards a model on, on, the, on, the, on the wheel. And he did manage to take the model's ear off so it would be a, it was not, not an easy thing to be doing. It was a terrific set, though. I imagine uh, I, I love being on that ring, I must admit. I, I believe that it was Barbara Broccoli's first bite of the sandwich, the James Bond sandwich. It's much more unnerving when you have to throw three knives at, at the camera, moving to a different spot each time, hitting the mark and then saying a line and throwing a knife all at the same time with no one else around and just you and the camera and marks on the floor. That is much more, but, um, much more tricky. No, being, being tied down onto a revolving target by beautiful women and then, you know, untied again and, and it was fine, fine. Huh? Glenn, John Glenn was, was actually told me, you know, get a move on Tony, what are you? But so I milked it, but I mean, I, I was performing. Of course, you also had that scene with Roger Moore where it was the uh, the chase through the woodland and obviously you had to do the knife throwing um, when he's at the doorway to the cabin. Was that quite a challenging scene to film as well, obviously because you've got a, a live actor as well that you've got to interact with? Oh, well, Roger Moore is the most delightful person to work with in the world. He makes you very relaxed just by his presence. But uh, to tell the truth... He, he, he did his bits with the knife and he had his close-ups and then they, um, then they started taking the set away. So the wood was going the, and the, it was just me and the camera, they were putting bits of wood around the camera. And they said, now, you, if you get hit that mark, throw that, throw that sword, uh, knife. They're taking the set away. Half the set has gone. Roger Moore is nowhere to be seen. And you're doing what you've been waiting to do all day, nay, all your life. Your big close-up with your line in a big movie. And that was the moment you had to wait for and then deliver when the time came. There's, uh, of course, the big train fight sequence filmed at uh, Benin Valley Railway. What were your memories of that location and, and how involved were you in the fight choreography? Of course, one of your characters, of course, has already been killed at that point. Yeah, I'm dead. I'm dead. And, and uh, uh, Roger Moore has donned my costume. It's like this giant railway threat for boys who like playing trains, you know, because uh, it doesn't go anywhere. It just goes backwards and forwards. And I don't know, there must be tra train aficionados who just love watching the carriages. The, the train was indeed moving, though, and uh, there were three people having a fight on top of the train and somebody's face had to be shown. And uh, Roger Moore certainly wasn't there. He was being played by a, gay, a wonderful uh, an Irish uh, stunt man called Martin Grace. The producer came in and said, would you mind, you know, climbing on top of the train? No, actually, it was bloody exciting. It was like I'd always wanted to do it after seeing the Cowboys and TV, black and white TV. As a, and and uh, Martin was so, he said, just move towards me, David. Hang on to me and we'll sway backwards and forwards. That was the choreography of the fight scene. Yes, I should have demanded lots more money and uh, lots more insurance and goodness knows what. But uh, those were the days. The wonderful guy who does the, the, 
the free running at the beginning of the Casino Royale, he was signing autographs. And I took the photograph of me on top of the train to him and said, look, this is what we used to do. <laughs> he was so nice. He said, oh, I've always wanted to do a, a thing on a moving train. How exciting. And we swapped lovely photographs and I've got his... Uh... Of course, the first scene in the film in which you, we see you both is the murder of 009. And, and it's one of the most atmospheric and disturbing sequences, I think, in, in the whole of the Roger Moore sort of era. It was terrific. Um, it is, of course, uh, pinched from the first scene of David Lean's wonderful film, The Great, Great Expectations. Starts in Berlin, of mm. course. And I did have, to, I did have to go to Berlin and the wall was still there. That's the actual wall and hole up in a hotel with a cast with a script, which I hadn't seen before, saying you must not show this script to anyone else. Do it private. Um, and climbed over the barbed wire fence. That immediately goes into the wood outside Pinewood, I mean, Pinewood Wood. And then the weir is somewhere else further up north. So that, that sequence is three different locations completely. And uh, it all, all sews together quite nicely. I remember the, the assistant director, Arthur, bless him, said, well, I've seen the rushes, it's terrific. We've got this wonderful reflection on the, on the knife. And I and you could see me. I was looking a bit pissed off. He said, oh, "No, you, you're look. I can see you. You're looking very good as well." <laughs> yes, it's mentioned somewhere on on a website that it should should have been the pre-credit sequence. Octopus was a, was a second Bond film directed by John Glenn, who'd gone to direct um, all the films in the series through the eighties. And um, what was he like on set? And, and how did he like to work with the actors? Did you enjoy working with him? Very calm, very relaxed, um, very easygoing. He seemed to know exactly what he needed, especially on, on the all the all the action pieces. Which just yeah, it was a brilliant, together, uh, brilliant, brilliant action director, uh, and uh, very experienced, of course, having been on the he edited, he'd been, been doing some editing, I think, on in, in the series, and then working in the second unit, and uh, had a very relaxed atmosphere. I do remember him, as I said, telling me to get a move on a bit, but um, that helps a lot because you think. You've been chosen. You've been, you've been cast, so you can do it. Um, and if a director can give you that, then that's that's really that's that's great. <laughs> it's a it's a nice atmosphere. Roger was so relaxed. Cubby and broccoli was uh, delightful. I I made I had the cheek. He said, oh, "How did it go, David?" After my big knife throwing close up, I said, "I said I think it went all right because." I was reading the script and it didn't look like, you know, very much. So, but, but I think it's, which is pretty unnerving to say the script didn't look too too interesting. But he said, oh, no, that's the thing with James Bond scripts. They don't look so much on the page, which is sort of sweet to me, to uh, having a proper chat with a producer about it. Maud was uh, terrific later when we met her up, met up doing signings. And uh, she taught us how to do that. <laughs> we didn't have to do a scene with her, but I mean, she taught us, you know, that it wasn't just a matter of scribbling your name on a on a program and, and you know, a photo and giving it back. You know, people wanted to know about things, maybe have a photo and so on. And she was so gracious to everybody who came along. But uh, yeah, Louis Jordan was very quiet. I, I've actually been cast in a production of. Dracula, which he'd done with Philip Savile, and of course I could have mentioned that, but we didn't. We didn't have much conversation. 
I did draw a drawing of Stephen, I think. Um, and um, and uh, I think I gave it to him and then he'd shown Cubby and said, oh, that's, that's, what's, that's what you do in between takes, you know. It is interesting that you'd had that prior relationship with Stephen Burkhoff because, of course, we know that he's this incredibly dynamic sort of director and actor in the theatre and, 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 you know, he sort of carries with him, I guess, a kind of intense reputation. I know he's... Uh, got a terrible reputation in some court. He's messed up sometimes, I think, with the big theatres and the national and so on, and probably got on the wrong side of some people. But um, nevertheless, um, we, we, you know, we had a great time and he was never, never rude to me. <laughs> and uh, I have a lot to be grateful for, for, for Stephen. I think that was his first villain part in a movie, I think, wasn't it? And he did, he picked up a few after that. Um, as English actors tend to do over in Hollywood, as we know. <laughs> so it was a good start. No, he'd, he'd done, a, done a villain in a Hollywood film. Had he? All yeah. oh, right, okay. I remember Barbara, Barbara, I can call her Barbara, Barbara Broccoli saying that was, you know, that we, we, reckoned, we reckoned him after seeing it, but I can't remember who it was. Uh, I think okay. possibly Eddie Murphy was in it, by the way. You've talked a little bit about um, uh, Roger Moore, of course, and, and, and how delightful he was. Uh, do you have any particular favourite memories of, uh, of being on set with him or, or just, I guess, being around him in that whole Bond circus? Not really on, on, the, uh, on the set. Um, I bumped into him at a waiting room uh, as a dentist and he was sitting across the room, from the room about 10 years later, you know. And I thought, oh, God, I went over to him and said that, hi, you, won't, you may not remember, I nearly killed you in Octopussy 10 years ago. And he said, oh, yes, I do. I said, do, do you remember? He said, I remember the shirts, he said, because we were all wearing the purple shirts. Obviously, he thought perhaps that wasn't the nicest thing to say. And as I was leaving, bless him, he got out of his chair from the, the room. Uh, I came into the hallway and said how nice it was to have seen me again. So that's my 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 favourite memory of how nice Roger Moore is. Yeah, everybody is. Uh, we, we both got rung up by somebody who was doing an article about him and, and uh, we were all saying, yes, he was so charming. And he gave me a lift in his in his roles. Was it a roles? Back to London once, I must admit. Uh, the, the the journalist said, oh, it's no good. I, I, nobody can say a bad word about him. You know, he's just, uh, he was very charming and set, very relaxed. And he and Maud had a great relationship because they'd worked together before. And I think that shows in the film because he was he was getting on a bit. And, you know, so to have this wonderful um, uh, Maud Adams with him was was worked, you know, it was terrific. You've also talked a little bit about um, the sort of interactions with uh, both Cubby and Barbara Broccoli and um, just sort of being around them and, and kind of seeing them work. What, what kind of marked them out for you as, as such sort of brilliant producers, I guess? It was quite an interesting production to be doing because at the same time, Sean Connery was doing Never Say Never Again or whatever. So they were, this was, you know, this was quite a battle. You know, are we, uh, Sean's doing you know, a rival film. But um, that didn't. We didn't. We didn't get any of uh, of a, pan a sense of uh, panic or anything like that on the set at the time. It was only afterwards that I realised. Wow, it was given that situation. It was it was very relaxed, maybe a bit too relaxed sometimes. There is the car that goes off a bridge and and, and into a river, very close to a boat, just a little too close for comfort, actually. I think some, somebody was a little too relaxed with that one. 
but um they must have had a great nose you know <laughs> and they luckily they had a nose for us <laughs> and the old pussy i suppose is really one of the last ones of the uh, one there was a sort of james bond formula that it was being followed and you knew it was a world that you had got accustomed to with the one-liners and all the rest of it, although John Glenn put more of the one-liners in than, uh, than, uh, uh, than some people should be there, thought should be there, actually. Or to some people thought, you know, it, it got a bit silly. Uh, it's now regarded with a great deal of affection, I think. But, and, and certainly while doing it, you were... You just felt you were in a ship that knew where it was going and, and who the boss was and everyone. You didn't see the captain very often uh, of the, the shipping line, but you knew you were in safe hands. It's, it's got a, a charm about it. And uh, before CGI, you know, um, all these huge digital things, explosions and crowd scenes in films now, you know, which I you know, just make it all technical and a bit cold. There's none of that in Octopussy. There is a moment when a tiger's head is pushed, a stuffed tiger's head is pushed out of the jungle very quickly in, <laughs> to simulate the attack of a tiger. And John Glenn on the DVD says, I think we got away with it, you know. And no, you did not. I mean, no, you couldn't possibly do that in a major film now. You only have a stuffed tiger's head. And I think other people kind of like that too. That's part of its charm. I think the action. I think the action sequences. Not just because I'm in one of one of them. I, I think it does sort of take off in the second half in a way. No, that's John Glenn. I mean, he was yeah. uh, consummate yeah. when it came to a, a a good car crash. So that was David and Tony Mayer. Really lovely to chat to them both. And uh, what I particularly liked was their typical British self-deprecation because uh, as enjoyable as Octopussy is as certainly as we know uh, they know that it's, it's not high art uh, but they seem to enjoy it for, for what it was and uh, obviously still stay connected with the the Bond community as well through the uh, the fan conventions. Yeah you really get the sense that they they had a, a good laugh on Octopussy. I, I get the sense from from chatting to them that they you know they really had fun on that film so it, it was great to to meet with them. And this for my brother. So next up, we have the 007 best segment in which we rank the seven best in a specially selected Bond category. And this week, we're going to share our favorite Bond directors, probably the smallest pool of candidates uh, chosen from 12 directors in total. So who made the cut? Let's find out, starting with number seven. And just squeezing onto the list, is a French-born Englishman, director of no less than four Bond pictures. It is Guy Hamilton. Now, Guy didn't have too much success outside of the Bond franchise with only a handful of unremarkable releases. You might say he didn't have great success in the franchise either. Diamonds Are Forever and The Man With The Golden Gun, usually pretty low in people's rankings, and uh, even Live and Let Die, which of course I rate rather highly, certainly not known for its particularly strong direction. Uh, so yes, it is obviously his first attempt that earns his place on the list. Goldfinger, probably the most well-known entry to the, the casual or non-Bond fan. Uh, wonderful film where everything seems to align, and certainly Hamilton himself thought the, uh, the same thing as well. He, he thought that the mixture of adventure, sexual innuendo, and black humour was the, uh, what caused the, the film's success. And uh, I, think, I think we agree, don't we, Chips? 
you know, Guy Hamilton, you, you might say that a lot of the films he directed haven't particularly aged that well. You know, you look at some of the uh, contents of The Man with the Golden Gun and, you know, Live and Let Die. And you think, you know, it's one of it's some of those films that you can't really get away with nowadays. You know, you wouldn't dream of putting some of that that content into a modern day film. Yeah, I think we shouldn't discount Guy Hamilton, as, as Martin sort of says. He, he kind of really introduced the comedy and the outlandishness to the series with Goldfinger, and that was really key to evolving the films beyond just being uber-stylish, sexy Fleming adaptations. Um, at the same time, we shouldn't discount his ability to generate tension. I mean, even in a film like Diamonds Are Forever, there are really violent set pieces in that and really suspenseful set pieces. The elevator fight with Peter Franks, you know, the, the near burning in the funeral parlour. And whatever you think of his non-Goldfinger Bond films, the characters in Guy Hamilton's films are always extremely vivid. We don't love The Man with the Golden Gun as like one of the best Bond films, but we talk about knick-knack every week. We talk about Scaramanga all the time. And obviously that's part writing, it's part performance, it's part costuming, but the director is helming all of that together in a subtle way. And so you can't discount Guy Hamilton's effect on those being as fun and memorable as they are. Yeah, I think before we started the podcast, I think certainly... Our least favourite. I know it was the bottom of my ranking, possibly of yours as well, Adam, before we started. But uh, since then, obviously, we've uh, it's enjoyed a renaissance. And, and yeah, the character development, as you mentioned, is is one of the, the main reasons for that. Number six. And in at number six, we have John Glenn, who, of course, made his name in the 80s bomb films, going right the way from For Your Eyes Only through to... Um, Timothy Dalton's finale in License to Kill. Maybe with the exception of A View to a Kill, we kind of look back on all of them very fondly, you know, obviously going from the kind of grittier start to the 80s with For Your Eyes Only and trying to to manage that change between more light-hearted tone that Roger Moore gave to the role to the more serious tone is always going to be a, quite a challenging thing to do. And, and I think that John Glenn should be commended as, as one of the all-time great Bond directors. And uh, you, you sort of look around it, and Michael G. Wilson, I think, once called him the world's best action director. He isn't, but, of course, John Glenn has a background in editing and second unit direction earlier in the Bond series, which means his action sequences blend really expertly into the films. You know, you, you don't feel like the film is stopping so that there can be a big action sequence in the way that, say, A Tomorrow Never Dies possibly does. Yeah, I think I, I wouldn't count the films that he directed are certainly not in, amongst my top Bond films, but you, I, I always consider him as a kind of a safe pair of hands, isn't he? He's not, not spectacular, but he, he gets the job done in between that tricky phase between Moore and Dalton and the pigeon scenes as well. Anyone who can put a pigeon scene in every single Bond film that he directs uh, gets my admiration. And yet he achieves great things in that. I mean, Octopussy, we love, we think it's barnstorming. I think it genuinely is. Living Daylights feels really big and tough and epic again in a way that the series probably hadn't for quite some time, maybe even back to the Connery movies. And I still champion For Your Eyes Only as the great connoisseur's Bond film, that classic blend of action and humour but deliberately sacrifices the spectacle for something more introspective. John Glenn really did sort of push Bond a little bit further beyond the edges of the envelope than we give him credit for still. Number five. And in at number five is Lewis Gilbert, the director of First You Only Live Twice, who returned for The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker. Uh, very odd in that outside of Bond, he was sort of very renowned as a director of kind of character studies, films like Alfie, Educating Rita, Shirley Valentine. And yet in 
his Bond films, he is Mr. Epic. He was celebrated as an absolute darling and Cruz loved him because he liked to clock off early, which is particularly staggering given the scale and the, the massive spectacle of the films that he made. I think we owe a lot to Lewis Gilbert in terms of what he did to try and push the, the franchise forward. Um, the Spy Who Loved Me particularly was... You know, we still look back on it fondly now. And just as you say, Adam, the set pieces and just the, the amount of visual identity that that film has, you know, and just how amazing everything is in terms of those big locations and the big characters and, and everything that's put together in that. And, you know, and the thing, even things like the groundbreaking chases and the stunts, and it created so many fond memories for so many fans. And, you know, we owe so much to Lewis Gilbert for doing that. Yeah, I'd go along with what you both said. I think epic really is the, the key word for Lewis Gilbert's films. And uh, I mean, many people have uh, highlighted the similarity between all three of these. You could say they are pretty much the same plot with some different characters and different locations. But I think he handles it maybe in Moonraker. It does go a little bit uh, a little bit wacky. Uh, but I think he handles it quite well in terms of what's it's quite complicated plot lines. Uh, even though they, I mean, he's got three times to to do it over and over again, but but uh, but they are quite complex. And uh, other directors in the Bond franchise, of course, have struggled with ninety minutes. But he's uh, he's got longer films, and uh, he's able to cram a lot in there, isn't he? The thing, yeah. I mean, if Guy Hamilton brought the humour, then Gilbert brought the wacky, as you say, or the bonkers. And um, but it's great because his three films kind of remain some of the most purely entertaining Bond films, even though a couple of them get into tangles for various reasons. Uh, his use of widescreen photography is key as well, certainly in um, *The Spy Who Loved Me* and *Moonraker*. The way that he uses that vast screen, that huge wide canvas, to stage shots in a way that is really outstanding and makes a high impact. Where's Peckish? Pyramids. And in at number four, just missing out on the top three, is a director who has won critical acclaim both before and after his Bond adventures, Road to Perdition, Jarhead, 1917, among his filmography. I mean, he won the, the Oscar for Best Director on his directorial debut with American Beauty in 1999. It is, of course, Sir Sam Mendes. Uh, he's a director of the highest calibre, and uh, I think it really shows, doesn't it, in both Skyfall and Spectre. Uh, we get a lot of action, we get a lot of suspense, lots of emotion, and uh, most importantly, we get a lot of hope as well for the future after a, a certain film, Quantum of Solace, left the franchise a little bit uncertain uh, so i think these two films uh, i think they are the, the highest grossing bond movies of all time i think even adjusted for inflation skyfall is at the top of the list uh, so yeah we uh, we know some of you don't like specter we understand the frustrations with some parts of that film but i think in terms of his of mendez's overall vision i think you can see what he was clearly see what he was trying to achieve there's a definite tone and direction he's aiming for uh, and i think by and large uh, he achieved it. Yeah, I'd agree, Martin. I think, you know, he's very much as a modern film director, he's he's not afraid to try new things. Of course, you know, you look at 1917 and just using one camera shot and, and it, it was some, almost something of a coup to get him, I think. And again, I've I've also voiced my feelings about Spectre. You know, it's, it's not one of my favourites, but I, I do concede that, you know, the way that Sam Mendes directs that film is superb. You know, you look at the, again, the kind of grand scale of that film and it does put you in mind of things like The Spy You Love Me or, you know, On A Majesty's Secret Service or, you know, those type of very big sets Bond films that we all kind of know and love. So I, I think we owe a huge debt of gratitude to Sam Mendes for kind of bringing Bond into the modern era. 
Yeah, definitely. And you're right. It was a real coup to get him, of course, as Martin said. He was an Oscar-winning filmmaker, but he was also probably the most celebrated theatre director in this country, um, someone who has an extraordinary creative visual eye. Uh, and both of those things mean that his films have two things. Firstly, the staging is absolutely stunning in both of them. Just think of things like the battle in the building in, in Hong Kong with, uh, you know, the assassin, you know, the way that that shot, the one shot apparently opening of Spectre, Silver's entrance, which uses no shadows, just allows him to do that long, slow walk uninterrupted. They look stunning and they sell the drama beautifully. But also, of course, the other side of that is a higher calibre of actors kind of start coming in because they want to work with Sam Mendes and because they want to work with Craig as Bond. You know, basically, since Mendes came in, you sort of have to have an Oscar to play the villain now. I mean, before that, it was Christopher Walken who did and pretty much no one else. And even the MI6 Massive, it's now incredibly thespy. You have some of the top British theatre actors who are currently going in roles like Q and even Tanner, of course. The invaluable Tanner. Although I suppose Rory Kinnear was Quantum of Solace, wasn't he? So we can't fully credit uh, Sam Mendes with bringing in the delightful Rory Kinnear. Number three. Okay, so in at number three to Terence Young, of course, who brought the Bond franchise to life, um, beginning at the very start with Doctor No. He then moved to From Russia With Love um, and he finished his uh, Bond directing career with Thunderball in 1965. Terence Young kind of brought Bond from uh, the pages of novels onto the big screen. It was kind of his direction that, that allowed us to, you know, really see the franchise come to life it's quite telling that they they obviously came back to Terence Young he was the first director that um kind of returned to the franchise kind of Doctor No gave the franchise the right feel and then of course from Russia with Love took it to the next level and and you know it gave us that that kind of starting point if you like yeah exactly and directing the film and of course directing Connery very specifically I think uh, smoothing the edges of the the rough model that they started with uh, into a sophisticated bond, as he's well known for doing. Uh, but I think we could say that people, the directors below Terence Young on our list here, arguably they've had one, at least one bad one. I mean, I would say not for Sam Mendes, but uh, that some people would. Uh, but whereas Terence Young, I think you've got three really solid entries, and not just solid entries, they are the foundation, aren't they? The, the cornerstone of Bond. Yeah, definitely. He, he's kind of curious, isn't he? He's, uh, he's one of those strange cases. He never did much outside of Bond, and yet he was the perfect person at the perfect moment in time to make those first films. There's just something really sexy about them, just what we know about his own debonair personality, his understanding of that very secret yet refined world. It just makes it hum with authenticity, really, from the start of Doctor No onwards. And yet at the same time, he gets the glamour and the sort of exoticism of those big international locations, certainly Jamaica, Turkey and the Bahamas. Um, you know, those who detract him call him a bit of a knockoff Hitchcock, but I think that fails to understand, A, how popular and influential Hitchcock was at the time, but also how hard it is to actually direct a film in the style of Hitchcock. And at their best, those early Bond films really do conjure that same sense of brilliance and electricity as the master of suspense. And I think that's the great thing that he brought to them. Yeah, I think if I was a director and someone called me a knockoff Hitchcock, I'd be like, 
I'd be quite happy, I think. Number two. And in at number two is Peter Hunt. Um, a curious one for this list, the only director on it who only made one Bond film, but what a Bond film. He was the guy who made Honor Majesty's Secret Service. And um, for me, still the most incredibly risky and audacious and ultimately heartbreaking film of them all. Something they don't really try to do again in the same way, certainly not till Casino Royale. Again, a brilliantly effective film, arguably not until No Time to Die, which very much exists in the shadow of Honor Majesty's Secret Service in a way that I personally found a little bit uh, cheaty. Um, but uh, Hunt was the editor of the previous films, and so he's the unsung hero of setting the visual style of um, the early Bond movies. They're a lot faster than most uh, films of the time, especially in the action sequences. And so when he finally gets the chance to helm a Bond film, he brings that style to bear on the whole thing. It's unimaginable to think how much pressure and, you know, and how much expectation was weighing on, on that film being you know, being the next chapter. And it and it just seems, even now, it seems fresh and modern. You get the feeling, obviously, you know, it's the cinematography and the way that Peter Hunt directs it. It could probably still fit as a modern-day Bond film. Yeah, I think, as you said, his, his legacy in the Bond franchise is certainly well-established, isn't it, as an editor? The fast editing pace that we get in many of the, the films creates that excitement. And, uh, yeah, certainly it's... Uh, I mean, for me, he's not quite top of the list because it was just a one hit, uh, but I'm sure it, it wouldn't have been a one hit wonder if he had have gone on to do another one, which I wish he had. Yeah, maybe there's a weird parallel universe, isn't there, in which, um, you know, Lazenby stays on in the role. And so Peter Hunt also stays on and directs him. And then the Roger Moore era sort of never happens. But yeah, I, I think it's just so brilliant. He understood with Honor Majesty's Hunt did that this is basically a romance movie set in the spy world. What No Time to Die gets wrong for me is that it's a spy film that kind of is trying to shoehorn this kind of deep romantic story into it. It doesn't quite work. But of course, why Honor Majesty's works is that because he understands that there's an intimacy and there's a sumptuousness surrounding the film, even though it's chilly in its settings and it's sharp and dynamic in its action. And so it's a film that's warm and cold at the same time, weirdly. Number one. And in at number one, our favourite Bond director, it's Mark Forster. No, it's not. It's Lee Chamahot. No, it's not. It's, it's Martin Campbell, of course. Obviously, it's Martin Campbell. He re-energised the Bond franchise, not, not once, but twice. Casino Royale, of course, a timeless masterpiece, feels fresh and exciting, 15 plus years on. And uh, GoldenEye, not quite as timeless, simply because of the, uh, the plot and the dial-up internet, uh, but still a, a fabulous entry with uh, a side helping of nostalgia, of course, for people of, uh, of our age, as I've said before, bringing back for the next one. I may be wrong here, but I think Martin Campbell was kind of a little bit of an unknown. It was perhaps a little bit of a risk to bring him in, but because, you know, obviously he hadn't really directed anything on this scale before. But he he kind of took the ball by the horns and, and really, for me, it's still GoldenEye is still one of the very best. And obviously Casino Royale as well is one of the very best. It was the fact that he could kind of take what what had gone before and take all the kind of best elements of Bond and then put it into a more modern spin and take it, you know, obviously he really did bring Bond into the 90s. Uh, I always go back to what Nicholas Sujic said to us about Bond pre and post Goldeneye. It's classic era versus suddenly modern era. He's the coolest film in town once again. And again, after Casino Royale, it goes from being, you know, a, just a big blockbuster film, of course, 
But after Casino Royale, an event movie and even an awards contender, you know, Craig was up for a BAFTA for Best Actor for that film. Um, I think what's brilliant about Campbell is obviously he's a great action director. Uh, he takes huge visual risks. You know, the golden eye opening is similar to Daylights, but it's so much more epic and visceral and violent. The opening of Casino Royale, black and white, no gun barrel, unlike anything you've ever seen before. At the same time, the character scenes are brilliant in his films. Everything that the various Bonds, you know, discusses with Judy Dench's M, you know, Brosnan versus Sean Bean, those scenes with Natalia, everything between Bond and Vesper in Casino Royale. And I think it's that thing, kind of what um, Terence Young had on Connery. The director's influence on the Bond performance is essential. Brosnan's as good as he is in GoldenEye because Campbell's directing him. And similarly with Craig in Casino Royale, he achieves that psychological dimension because Campbell understands that's what will serve the film best. Well, I understand double O's have a very short life expectancy, so your mistake will be short-lived. We move now to our next segment, which is the James Bond Film Club, where this time we're heading back to 2005 and back to a film that esteemed movie critic Roger Ebert described as an overlooked gem. Uh, he said that the lead actor's uh, work was the best to date, apparently. But uh, who was the lead actor? What was the film? Over to Adam. Thank you very much. Yes, uh, we are welcoming Pierce Brosnan back to the James Bond Film Club for the first time since we reviewed him in the 1988 action classic Taffin. Then maybe you shouldn't be living here! This time he's back with a film called The Matador. This is written and directed by Richard Shepard uh, and starring Brosnan in a Golden Globe nominated role, only the second of his career and the first for his film work. Um, this is one of his very first post-Bond roles and he deliberately undermines his Bond persona in it by playing Julian Noble, who is this kind of jaded, disillusioned, heavy drinking, heavy whoring assassin who's frankly going to bits. He sports this very bizarre moustache. Uh, he tells kids in the street who come up to him to F off. Uh, he does a few sordid, pervy sex scenes and walks through a hotel lobby in his boxers. You know, that kind of thing. Anyway, Brosnan in a Mexico hotel bar meets a businessman called Danny, played by Greg Kinnear, who's a little bit of a, a loser and who's completely stressed about landing this sort of career-saving contract. And when they meet, an uneasy friendship strikes up and Julian actually tells Danny that he is a hitman and asks him to assist him in a job which he, of course, refuses. But then, in a key scene in their hotel room, there's a crucial moment where the scene fades to black. And next thing you know, it's six months later, it's Christmas, and Julian has arrived at Danny's family home, again asking him for help on a job, but with the pointed words this time, you owe me. So basically, this central mystery hangs over the film, which is kind of an unlikely buddy comedy. And it's about this queasy, awkward bromance between Brosnan and Kinnear, who spark off each other really, really well. The characters are in complete juxtaposition and the actors both nail those roles. Uh, and the writing is actually really funny. You know, there's a lot of really good banter between them. And I have to say, I agree with Roger Ebert. I think Pierce Brosnan is terrific in this film. Uh, he's, he's undermined his Bond persona since pretty much consistently by playing very self-deprecating romantic leads to actresses who are frankly better than him. You know, of course, Meryl Streep in Mamma Mia, Emma Thompson in The Love Punch. Um, but this is one of um, a couple of films, this in The Tailor of Panama, where he plays other spies, but deliberately plays them as the complete polar opposite of Bond. I maintain this is a really good film. And there's an interesting story of when it first came out, where basically me and Phil went to this and came back and told Martin that it was really good and that he should go and see it. Martin then went to it and hated it. And so having looked at it again, I can reaffirm 
it's nothing amazing or special, but it's a really good, fun, entertaining buddy comedy. And I sort of can't remember why you disliked it so much, mine. I can't remember either, actually. I'm not, um, maybe, I can't remember if I hated Die Another Day at that time. I don't think it had garnered quite the hatred, had it, in 2005, just a couple of years after release. I, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't disliking it because of Brosnan in Die Another Day, I don't think. Maybe I just wasn't ready to see Brosnan in, in anything else. I just, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't over him being bombed, perhaps. Was there too much of him walking around in those shabby black boxes? Yeah, that well, that could have been it. Yeah, <laughs> maybe, or maybe I need to revisit it then if it is as good as you're you're claiming. Was it that strange pencil mustache he's got in this? I mean, it is off-putting. It does look a bit glued on. I don't know. I, I still maintain, Adam. I I agree with you. I think you know we obviously went to see it at the cinema way back in 2005 when it came out, and I still maintain this is one of. Pierce Brosnan's best non-Bond films. I know he's, he's made, you know, a lot of them, but Martin, I can sort of see where you're coming from. Obviously, you know, the, the wounds were still uh, quite raw from Dying Another Day. Obviously, we all had to get over the shock of that and, and you know, and probably seeing Brosnan in a, a film a couple of years later was still a bit too soon, maybe. But I think the one off-putting thing is, you know, it does sometimes hit you over the head with its own boardiness and Brosnan is deliberately going out on a bit of a limb to be as unbondian as possible. And uh, I'm, I'm not entirely convinced by some of his uh, breakdown scenes, you know, like, oh, I don't know what I was doing, uh, kind of stuff. But in general, I think he's very good in this. And it's got uh, Greg Kinnear, of course. Would it would it have wor- worked with Rory? Oh, I think Rory would have been really good in that role if uh, if he'd have been of an age at the time. I guess he probably could have been. Yeah, Rory Kinnear would have been great in it. I'd have loved to have seen that. I think we should have had a double act of the two Kinnears and then see how that would have worked. Rory and Greg together at last. Charlie, man, I think you and me are really going to hit it off. And our next segment is Phil's blooper reel. And I believe you're looking at a film that many would consider a 100% gaff from start to finish. Uh, but what specifically are you going to focus on this week, Phil? Well, absolutely, Martin. So this week's uh, feature for Bond bloopers is the 70s classic Diamonds Are Forever, which, as you've already mentioned, is probably one long blooper from start to finish. Um, it also features which probably is the most famous Bond blooper of them all, of course, where Bond and Tiffany Case are escaping the Keystone Cops of the Las Vegas police force down a narrow alleyway in their Mustang Mach 1, which seems to flip mid-scene. Of course, this went down in infamy with uh, Bond fans, of course, for its kind of stupidity that it could be missed so easily. And obviously the way they tried to fix it was um, embarrassingly shoddy. The fact that somehow we're meant to believe that the car magically turns from one side to the other mid alleyway is just, you know, kind of insulting to the audience and to everyone involved with the film. One of the other famous sequences is when Bond is attempting to escape the uh, the televised moon landing, which is, of course, being faked in the moon buggy. And the security forces are also trying to apprehend him. Now, mid-scene, we actually see that uh, they clearly have tried to stitch two takes together because the moon buggy seems to lose two wheels partway through the actual sequence as they roll down the hill, but yet it's still able to drive away. So we're not really sure how that managed to happen. The fact that, you know, we've got two wheels just kind of bouncing along of their own accord. When Plenty O'Toole visits Bond's hotel room, she says Bond's room is super, but you never actually her lips move so you know unless she's a ventriloquist dummy i don't really know what's happening there you also get some interesting moments with bond and tiff 
Tiffany case as well. So when Bond suggests that Tiffany could get 20 years to life, they seem to switch places mid-scene and Tiffany's lips also don't move in this sequence. So again, we're not really sure whether they meant to dub this in and get Tiffany case to, to mouth that or whether she just forgot. Now, one of, I was going to bring this back as well to the, the Mustang chase as well. Now, when Bond and Tiffany are trying to escape the Vegas police, we clearly see them drive past the Golden Nugget Casino, which is one of the famous um, casinos on the Las Vegas Strip. If you look very closely, they do this more than once without actually turning back. So how the hell are they... Are they just reversing backwards and forwards to try and outwit the police? I mean, the fact that they're so inept, you could get the idea that they might, you know, outwit them that way. But it seems a bit strange that they'd be driving past the same casino multiple times without turning any corners. And perhaps one of my favourite moments of the film as well is, of course, when Bond is fighting Bambi and Thumper in the pool sequence. Obviously, we see him clearly push their heads underneath the water and he's also drenched. You know, he's had to basically fall into the pool as well. If you're eagle-eyed, you'll notice that when he gets to the bottom of the steps, when he's obviously exited the pool, he's then completely dry. So unless it's baking hot and everybody is kind of in a makeshift hairdryer, how the hell does he get dry that quickly? Because I don't think you can really go from being completely submerged into a swimming pool to fully dry within the space of 10 seconds. That is just a very, very short snapshot of, of just some of the multitude of, of errors that uh, occur in Diamonds Are Forever, of course. As we said, it's kind of one long blooper reel from start to finish. If there are any other favourite moments from Diamonds Are Forever that you think I've missed that we should have maybe picked up on, please do get in touch with us and let us know. And of course, we will give you a mention in the next show. Thanks for those, Phil. Eagle-eyed, it's probably best not to be eagle-eyed, isn't it, when watching Diamonds Are Forever. <laughs> Bat-eyed, perhaps, you get a much more enjoyable experience. Yeah, you, you were certainly a lot better at catching those than Felix Leiter was at not letting um, Tiffany Case slip out of a circus, wasn't he? A mouse with sneakers on couldn't get out of here. You shouldn't let these mistakes bother you so much, Phil. As Sean himself says, if you see a mad professor in a minibus, just smile. No show? Felix, don't tell me you lost her. We lost her. So thanks to Phil there in G section. He'll be in Q section shortly. But uh, before that, we move to my segment, which is Delve Deeply. And this week, we're delving deeply into Turkey, the location for three Bond adventures. The first, of course, being my favorite from Russia with Love, where Bond makes contact with Ali Karim Bey and perhaps has a little bit too much fun at that gypsy camp. Uh, so the, the city that plays host to most of the action has had, has had more monikers than Bond himself, uh, Byzantium, New Rome, Constantinople, uh, but by the time of the film's release, it had been uh, Istanbul for some 33 years. Uh, probably the most iconic location is the Hagia Sophia, which began life in the 6th century as a Christian church, then became an Islamic mosque, then a museum, um, but since 2020, it's uh, reverted back to being a mosque. And uh, in the film, this is where we get the, the wonderful dramatic foreboding score as uh, Tatiana passes the, uh, the floor plan of the Soviet consulate to Connery's Bond. And at the same time, Red Grant watches on and takes out that rather hapless Bulgarian agent in the, in the shadows. Uh, so in order to uh, get there, it's uh, in the Fatia district, uh, even though it is a place of worship, as I've mentioned, there are still private companies doing guided tours, uh, widely available to book online. And uh, one area of the surroundings which should be a must for any Bond fan is the Basilica Cistern, the, uh, the huge 
structure 140 by 70 meters, uh, just a three minute walk from the uh, Hagia Sophia. And it's where Bond takes that underground boat trip with Kerim Bay. Yeah, the punting, he's much better at punting than I am, as uh, Phil and Adam can certainly attest to. Um, but uh, he does get his history incorrect, though. It was uh, the cistern was created by the Emperor Justinian rather than uh, the, uh, the Emperor that uh, Karen Bay claims in the film. Uh, but uh, anyway, it's uh, around 30 Turkish lira to enter nowadays. And uh, although, unfortunately, at the time of recording in early 2022, uh, it is actually closed for renovation work. And the, uh, the other location I'd like to mention is the uh, Rumlian Castle in the Surya district that doubles as the Gypsy Camp. The, uh, the 15th century fortress offers some incredible views of the city and the Bosphorus Strait. Uh, but again, might be one for the future as it is temporarily closed. Uh, so that's from Russia with Love. And uh, we have to wait quite a long time, actually, for Turkey to appear again in The World is Not Enough. Of course, one of the key locations in Brosnan's third Bond adventure is the uh, Kiz Kulesa, or Maiden's Tower, which is Renard's hideout and M's temporary prison. Uh, but uh, perhaps not the best location for a, a Bond location hunter, as uh, actually all of the interior scenes were shot in Pinewood, apparently because of the uh, 1999 Istanbul bombings. Uh, so on a, a slightly more positive, brighter note, uh, we come to the, the third and the final film that was set in Turkey, which is Skyfall, where we get that epic pre-title sequence with Craig's Bond leaving Ronson to bleed out. Those opening shots were filmed at the Deutsche Orient Bank, leading, of course, to the, the car and motorbike chase uh, among and atop the streets of Istanbul's Grand Bazaar, one of the, uh, the oldest street markets in the world. And then, of course, leading to the other uh, train fight with Patrice fighting the, uh, for that precious hard drive with all the names of the spies on it, where Money Penny takes the bloody shot. And uh, that one, even though it's presented as still being in Istanbul, that scene was actually filmed at the, uh, the Varda Bridge in the city of Adana in the east of Turkey. And the final location of note is where we see Bond sipping his Heineken, having that dangerous scorpion shot and generally looking a bit washed up on the uh, the Kalis beach at uh, Fethiye in the southwest of Turkey. Uh, apparently Craig and co-star Ber uh, Berenice Marlowe stayed at the, uh, the four-star yacht classic hotel by the beach and uh, it now boasts a James Bond suite. Uh, so that's Turkey, uh, Turkey and Bond, uh, plenty of uh, interesting places. Uh, you could alternatively go back to the uh, the James Bond video game Bloodstone, where there's a very exciting level where you can you can drive around the streets of Istanbul in the DB5. But uh, that's Turkey. Cheers for that. And, and in the course of all that research, did you find anywhere good to get a really great meal of green figs, yogurt, and coffee very black? Uh, a lot of research was done, but no, that that was the vital information was missing there. Sorry, Adam. Also, presumably those Istanbul hotel rooms that you've mentioned don't have a two-way mirror behind, which a sort of um, strange Russian lesbian is filming everything that you might get up to. You certainly hope not. <laughs> you are very fortunate to have been chosen for such a simple, delightful duty. So next up is Q-Branch, the questions branch, where we get to hear from you, our cubbies, our dear listeners. So uh, what questions were submitted this time, Phil? Answer my questions quietly, but clearly. As spring is in the air, of course, romance is also in the air. Of course, James Bond romance, as we will get on to. So I put out um, 
on our socials a little bit of a suggestion for our fellow fans and followers to come back with their kind of the most romantic moments in the Bond franchise, the ones that they always kind of remember so fondly. Of course, we had a lot of mentions for Vespa and Bond um, throughout Casino Royale. Of course, the shower scene is always one that, that many people fondly remember. We also did get more entertainingly. There was also a suggestion for BB Dahl. Um, not necessarily sure if that's more of the romantic aspect or if that's more of a suggestion that it's uh, a little bit on the creepier side, but you know, we'll, we'll, we're open to that suggestion. We also got Dalton and Pambuva. Of course, we mentioned them in our on the scene segment, but at the end when Dalton is kind of realizes that he's maybe made the mistake of going with um, Lupe, he obviously utters the line, Pambuva, sorry, utters the line, why don't you wait until you're asked? And then obviously Bond says, so why don't you ask me? So it's kind of that great interplay between the two characters. We also did get some mentions for Bond and Moneypenny. Of course, the great interactions between Moneypenny and Bond in the 60s films, but also Dalton's Bond um, in The Living Daylights, perhaps more with Caroline Bliss as well. The the main one that we also had as well was... um, the interaction between Tracy and Bond in On Imagine Secret Service, perhaps the most romantic of the entire franchise. And obviously, as we all know, how that ends up. Guys, I'm not sure if you would agree with those. Would you say that we've had any other kind of major romantic moments in the franchise? Am I to infer we haven't had any actual questions sent in this week? We're a bit thin on the ground, I'll put it that way. I've got a question. Has anyone thought of any good B films? I thought of another bad one. I mean B films. What were we talking about last week? Any good films with bees in them? Oh, God. I thought of another bad one. Do you ever see Jupiter Ascending? I've heard of it. Isn't it meant to be god-awful? Yeah, but it's hilariously god-awful. It's uh, me, It's the Wachowskis uh, post-Matrix, pre-Matrix Resurrections. I think it's the film that kind of bombed their Hollywood careers, finally. Mila Kunis plays a woman on Earth who discovers she's an intergalactic queen space bee. And Sean Bean's one of her sort of bee guards. But it's great because in it, Eddie Murphy, not Eddie Murphy, (laughs) Eddie Redmayne gives the most hilariously bad performance that any Oscar winning actor has ever given. It's it's he's like this sort of dark warlord type figure. But it has every line like this, like he's a 90-year-old man, and suddenly shouts. It's it's such it's so it's one of the most batty performances ever. You've got to watch it just for that. Would it have been improved if Eddie Murphy had been in it? It probably would have been, to be honest. That's just force of habit, isn't it? After Norbit and indeed Nutty Professor Two the Clumps, you just assume it's Murphy. I'd like to see Eddie Murphy channeling Sir Ian McKellen's voice. That would have been a more interesting film. But yeah, going back to your, well, it wasn't a question, it was our own question, was it, Phil? We've posed it to ourselves there about romantic encounters. Uh, yeah, get, going back to this one, I'd say that uh, probably Money Penny and Bond in Skyfall was quite impressive for me. I think uh, never quite bought the romance, really, even though the scenes were quite fun when you had Connery and, and Moore with Lois Maxwell, but uh, it didn't quite do it for me. But I think uh, made it more interesting. I think uh, Naomi Harris's interpretation of Money Penny certainly becomes a lot more modern, doesn't it? And um, that, that romance seems a bit more believable. Um, but apart from that, um, Winton Kidd, obviously. My favourite romantic moments, um, Silver making a pass at Daniel Craig in Skyfall. Oh, Mr Bond. They're really good friends in real life, Bardem and Daniel Craig. And apparently Bardem jumped out of a cake Marilyn Monroe style and sung a song for him at um, Daniel Craig's birthday one year. 
mean, that's going to be a sight, isn't it? I mean, it's it's an entrance. Let's put it that way. No, 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 no! Stop getting Bond wrong! Stop getting Bond wrong! So we come to the final segment of the episode. It's my ritual humiliation. It's the quiz. And this week it is back to Phil, so uh, he's going to dish out the punishment this time. I assume in car-related fashion, Phil. What what have we got? Oh, you know me too well, mate. You know me too well. So this week's quiz is the James Bond car is the star. You'll both get five questions each, penalty shootout style. I'm going to give you the names of cars that are featured in James Bond films. All you have to do is tell me which film they appeared in. Martin, to start you off, the Aston Martin DB5. Goldfinger. Correct. So moving over to Adam. Adam, or Golden the Eye. Lotus is, well, yes, or, you know, or you could Skyball. have had quite a lot. Or did, half, could yes. have named any, really. Yeah, or Thunderball, or Tomorrow Never Dies, or Casino Royale, or No Time to Die. You know, so it is actually the most used Bond car of them all. Is so, it? Adam, it Top is. Fact. Anyway. Bond news. The DB5 is the best car. Anyway, moving on. Adam, your first question. The Lotus Esprit. The spy who loved me. Correct. The best ever made. Of course, you could have also had For Your Eyes Only, which we looked at last week. So, Martin, question two. The Range Rover. Uh, is that in Skyfall? It is, yes. Just. It is one of the more modern Bond cars, but you could have actually had Octopussy where it debuted... The Living Daylights, Tomorrow Never Dies, Casino Royale, and Quantum of Solace, as well as No Time to Die. So for you as well. So Adam, moving on to you, the Aston Martin DBS. Don't actually know this one off the top of my head. Um, the DBS strikes a vague bell as having been in Quantum of Solace, so I'll say that. Correct, it was. It's actually the first Bond car to have two incarnations. So actually, the DBS original debuted in Honor Majesty's Secret Service. It then came back as the modern iteration in Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace, as you said. So two out of two for both. So Martin, question three, the Jaguar XKR. Yeah, this is where my car knowledge might end. Um, uh, let's. Uh, is it die another day? It is. It was Zhao's weapons-laden <laughs> bright green monstrosity. But no, yes, you are correct. So that's three out of three for die another day. Adam... Your third question, the BMW 750IL. I think we ranked that when we did cars, and I think that was Tomorrow Never Dies. It is, of course, Bond's equally weapon-laden car, which was thrashed around the uh, the fake Hamburg car park. So we're neck and neck as we go into question four. Martin, the Alfa Romeo GTV6. I feel like it's probably a more one. I'll guess. I'm not, I really don't know. Uh, for your eyes only. Oh, it's your one shot. It was Octopussy. So this was the car that Bond steals from the permed German woman outside the phone box and then roars off to the circus. So, Martin, that was your first slip-up. So over to Adam to see if he can take the advantage. Adam, your car is the Renault 11. Is it a Renault that gets chopped in half in a view to a kill? It is indeed. It's the taxi that Bond steals from the slightly over-enthusiastic French taxi driver. And indeed, it does get chopped in half and the roof sliced off. Martin, this is a crucial one for you. For your final question, the Mini Moke. Uh, not much of an idea for this one either. Um, the Mini Moke, let's go. Let's go, you only live twice. 
Always got it. You are correct. <laughs> oh, yes. It was. You only That's a complete twice. guess. It's... I was thinking so Japan. Adam... Japan small cars. That was my only logic there. So Adam, your finale, the Sunbeam Alpine. That's Doctor No. It is indeed. It was the very first Bond car, of course, driven by Sean Connery. And that means, Adam, with a full house, you are this week's winner. Congratulations. Thank you very much. I was slightly, I have a print of like Bond cars somewhere around the house. Um, in fact, it's right behind me. So um, I wasn't looking at it during, uh, but that did help me a little bit with a couple of those. I think that was quite a good quiz there, Phil. It was, it was car based, but it was nicely pitched. We almost yeah, got all of them right. Accessible, accessibly car based. <laughs> not, not too obscure this time, I don't think. So that brings us to the end of today's episode. Thanks a lot for joining us here in the cubby hole. We'll be back very soon with the next episode and some more exciting guests to talk to as well. But in the meantime, do check out our social media pages, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, um, as well as, of course, the uh, email address, rogermorescubbyhole at gmail.com. Any of your questions, theories, suggestions, very welcome to receive them. But uh, that's it for today. Thanks for joining. I was Martin. I was Adam. And I was Phil. Hope you enjoyed the show. Good night. I do have one gripe with Dalton in this scene. And what the hell was he doing with his hair in 1989? Because it, it, it's that weird swept back look, which seems to be, it, I, I don't know what, on, did he get it cut with a hedge trimmer? I don't know. Isn't this a weird online thing amongst the Bond community? Dalton's weird hair in Licence to Kill. I think Q must have swept it back with that rake that he got. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>